You're listening to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. I'm your host, Richard Cantu. Please join me as I talk about World War I history and preserve the stories from the soldiers who lived through it. Welcome back, folks. This is episode 58, part two of Africa and the Great War through 1915. On the last episode, I talked about the Cameroons. The Cameroons lies in a coastal area of Africa that was once known as the Slave Coast. Roughly one and a half million African slaves were taken from the Cameroons. And although that doesn't have anything to do with the Great War, it still is a sad yet interesting fact. Many of the slaves were taken to America, ranging between Maryland and South Carolina. The slave trade didn't really stop until colonial rule came around, which began with Germany for the Cameroons. However, treatment of native Africans from the colonials mirrored that of a slave trade. So, tomatoes, tomatoes, what's the difference? They were still treated like slaves. I had to have been in my 20s when I read Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Still a young man, maybe too immature at the time to realize the underlying message regarding imperialism and what it did to parts of the world. As the sailor Charles Marlowe makes his way through the snake-like rivers of the Belgian Congo, he becomes witness to the effects of colonial rule. When I started reading about Africa's role in the Great War, I couldn't help but relate this to Conrad's novel, which was published in 1899. Part adventure, moving through the jungle, and part horrifying, as they depicted the slaves. Kurtz, the ivory trader, is a character from the book who's labeled as a man who's gone native, a person who's gone mad. In the case of the Great War coming to Africa, whole nations went mad almost in sync. On, also on the last episode, I spoke about Germany having sophisticated wireless communication systems for the time throughout Africa. A few years before the war broke out, Germany erected several wireless communication towers, not only in Africa, but also East Asia and the Pacific. Germany now had, had direct communications with its colonies. And this is why the Allies thought it was crucial to take these towers down or requisition them. But let's not forget the Allies also had intentions on expanding their colonial territories. So this wasn't only the love of communication towers. By late August 1914, British and French troops teamed up under the command of General Charles Dobell and attacked the Germans at Douala. In 1913, Dobell was appointed as the Inspector General for the West African Frontier Force, also known as the WAF, W-A-F-F. He was in London when the Great War broke out, but quickly returned with a mission to take the Cameroons. And it really was straightforward. It took Dobell and his force until the end of 1915 to get an overwhelming footprint in the Cameroons, chasing the Germans out. The British and French troops combined outnumber the Germans. The reason they didn't defeat Germany's Schutztruppe any sooner was simply because the Germans were better trained. 
In the course of taking the Cameroons through 1915, the British and French suffered thousands of casualties, but the majority of the deaths were caused by illness. This area was rampant with diseases, nicknamed the White Man's Grave. So check out episode 57 if you already haven't done so. I think you're going to enjoy it. All right, folks. What am I drinking for this episode? I am sipping on some Old Forester 1920 bourbon whiskey. And let's give it a taste, even though I've already drank half the bottle since I've had it. Not in one sitting, of course. Yep, this is a this is a really good. And there's different lines of uh of old Forester. I like the 1920. Um let's see, some admin notes. I got a few things I'll hold off till the till the uh end of the episode. I will say this though, as I'm drinking my whiskey. Last night, it was pretty late. I watched this horror movie. I don't even want to call it horror. I'll call it gore movie called Terrifier 2. And again, I'm into scary movies outside of demonic or possessions. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I think I said when I started this podcast, kind of one of the reasons I got into World War One because when I was a kid, I used to be in these slasher movies, horror movies. To read Fangoria magazine. Um, so occasionally I'll check them out today, see what's updated, see if there's anything new, worthwhile. <clears throat> I watched Terrifier 1. It's about Art the Clown. So I'm like, well, I got to watch Terrifier 2. Okay. So fast forward to last night. <laughs> watched it and my God, that thing was gory. I mean, I don't know if, if it's a little too gory, if they've gone overboard. I mean, the... The script was was horrible. I mean, the script was just trash. The sound, the quality of the sound of the movie was horrible. But I, I don't even think that's what you're there for. <laughs> I think you're strictly there just to watch the gore. And that part they did, um, I don't know if you want to call it amazing job, but they definitely got their point across. I do think they made Arthur Clown look kind of cool. I mean, they got to... Hands down, you got to give them some credit for their, the way that, you know, what we call it, makeup artist or whatever they call them. But uh, yeah, I mean, holy moly, I watched this thing late last night and it was gory and I should not have watched it that late at night because I did not sleep so good. I've had some weird dreams, but uh thought I'd share that with you all. So I lost a little bit of sleep last night. So I'm not all there. I just need to wake up and hopefully this whiskey will do the job. And like I said, I got a few admin notes, but I'm going to save that um, for the end of the episode. All right. Let's get into the second part of Africa and the Great War. Germany's second largest colony in Africa was German Southwest Africa, today called Namibia. A pretty sizable piece of land, larger than the size of Texas. Germany first colonized the area in 1884. And the population of German settlers before the Great War kicked off was a little over 2,500. Today, there's still German names on buildings and businesses. 
It's estimated that around 30,000 German descendants still live there today. And some of these cities in Namibia, they look amazing. I never really had a spark to ever want to travel and explore South Africa, but Namibia actually looks really cool. Some of the cities. The Deutsch language is still spoken. There's even a German radio station along with a news broadcasting station. The German newspaper Allgemeine Zeitung, founded in 1916, remains in publication. That's actually pretty impressive that it still remains. And the country is vast. Something like 90% of the country isn't populated with people. And that's because it's extremely dry and there's no real source for people to get water or at least a, a healthy source. You know, animals can drink from water holes, but you try that as a human and uh, hey, you're going to be in some trouble. So Germany still has a presence in Namibia after the Great War, even up through today. <clears throat> and just because the majority of the country isn't populated today, at the turn of the 19th and 20th century, it was inhabited by a variety of African tribes. The majority were Bantu, but there were also Bushmen, Hottentots, also known as the yellow and dark skinned people of Africa in the Zambezi region, and also mixed Europeans. In the 19th century, the Hottentots were conquered by the Herreros who in turn were destroyed by the Germans between 1904 and 1908. This was also known as the Herrero Wars. It's also known as the Herrero and Namaqua genocide. In fact, this would be the, sadly, will be the first genocide for the 20th century. The German governor at the time, Lothar von Trotha, gave orders to Kill every one of them and take no prisoners. I wish to make sure that never again will there be another Herrero rebellion. That was the actual order given by him. The Herreros were nearly wiped out of existence. <clears throat> okay, now I need to introduce Walvish Bay. And today because pronounced Walvis. Geographically speaking, it's a coastal town in the middle of Namibia. At the time when the Great War kicked off, it was located inside German Southwest Africa. But it was politically separated because Walvish Bay became a British territory in 1878 and remained British. It's this tiny dot of a natural harbor located within a vast amount of German territory. And... During this time, it was the only harbor in Southwest Africa suitable for a naval base. Hermann Göring, the Nazi politician and military leader who was convicted of war crimes during the Nuremberg trial, in fact, he was the, I believe, second highest ranking official tried and convicted. He was also an ace fighter pilot during the Great War, received the Poor Le Merit. His father, Ernst Göring, was the first commissioner of the Reichskommissioner, I'm sorry, I just said that wrong, Reichskommissar in German Southwest Africa. He arrived in 1885. Ernst Goring was known for his aggression towards the African natives. 
Because of this, German relations with the natives were rarely good. He didn't allow any black Africans in the shoots troop. The apple apparently doesn't fall far from the tree. Now, like the rest of the colonies in Southwest Africa, they lacked in manpower, but they didn't lack in experience. Just in numbers, they weren't really prepared. In fact, the Schutztruppe in German Southwest Africa comprised of hand-picked, well-trained soldiers. All of the officers had at least three years experience and had to be exceptionally fit, not to mention had to come with a recommendation. The other ranks were volunteers with a minimum of two years service in the regular army. They too had a requirement to be physically fit and with good character. Joining the German Southwest Africa Schutztruppe required three and a half years of service, after which they would be put on reserve status and were offered a lucrative offer to remain as colonists. So this wasn't some ragtag outfit. Yes, they weren't the biggest. They were roughly, I think they had around 7,000 soldiers, but they were professional soldiers. <clears throat> and there was beef with South Africa. There was tension between the two, obviously, since South Africa was colonized by the British in 1806, then was formed into the Union of South Africa in 1910, but was still under British rule. And the war just kicked off, so yeah, these two were having a bit of a standoff. South Africa did manage to put together a force of 50,000 Europeans, along with 33,000 black Africans who were considered non-combatants. Germany was depending on the Boers in South Africa to seize the opportunity to help them drive the British out. Boers are descendants of the Dutch who came to this part of Africa between the 17th and 19th century. They were basically farmers. The Dutch East India Company controlled this area until the British arrived in 1806. The Germans had been preparing for the Boers to have a full-blown revolution in South Africa. And now was their time to help light the fire. Because one thing the Boers, also known as the Afrikaners, were known for was their love of being independent. There were several small republics formed, but two to note are the Orange Free State and the South African Republic. At the turn of the century, both were crushed by the British. <clears throat> it was a devastating war that lasted over two years. The British had to deploy over a half a million men to subdue these two republics. The war ended in 1902. This was known as the Second Boer War. The First Boer War was fought from December 1880 to March 1881, fought between the Boers and the British. The Boers were also known as the Transvaal. Some also call this the Transvaal War. Either way, the Boers won and they gained their independence from the South African Republic. So again, there was still some tension, which I like to call beef, between the two when the Great War kicked off just 12 years after the Second Boer War ended. However, now, the Boers were somewhat divided. 
see, there were still Boers that despised the British for what they did following the Second War, like burning crops, fields, and farmhouses, along with sending their women and children to concentration camps. But the other half of the Boers didn't see things through the same glass. It can't be denied that the British Empire poured a massive amount of money back into the farms and towns to help rehabilitate the Boers. Many of the Boers view this as a good gesture. And really it was. They even allowed Boers into elections. Boer military leaders such as Louis Botha, not to be mistaken for Louis Barthas, the French Pailu, became public officials. In 1910, all four South African colonies united, which became the Union of South Africa, and Batha became the Prime Minister. So, Boers like Batha, once bitter enemies of the British Empire, were now loyal to the crown. Bad news for Germany, when the Great War kicked off, Batha immediately sent a wire to London saying his forces would be ready to protect South Africa. Botha told London that his men could seize parts of German Southwest Africa and the wireless stations there. This was music to the British ears. On the 19th of September, 1914, the South Africans landed over 1,800 men at Luderitzbucht, today called Luderitz, along with another landing of 2,500 men at Port Noloth. Port Noloth today is part of South Africa and Luderitz is in Namibia. Luderitz is actually quite a distance north of Port Noloth. The boundary that separated South Africa and German Southwest Africa was a narrow strip of water called the Orange River. After the landing, the South Africans took control of it. The troops that landed at Port Noloth were under the command of Brigadier General Henry Lucan. Lucan's main force arrived at Romansdrift on the 24th of September. Some maps won't even have Ramansdrift. It's now an abandoned town. If you look up Good House, South Africa, Ramansdrift is slightly northeast up the Orange River. On September 25th, a patrol of 120 South Africans were attacked by the Germans at Sanfontein. This was inside German territory at the time. A group from the 1st South African Mounted Rifles with 13-pounders, along with machine guns and a section of horse artillery, were sent to reinforce the small patrol. They arrived on the 26th. But before the first mounted rifles could even get their feet on the ground, a message was sent saying a column, column of Germans was approaching from the northeast. The commander, Lieutenant Colonel R.C. Grant, went to look on a hill and actually found another column advancing from the east and one from the west. At 0800 hours, the South African guns opened up from a distance of 4,000 yards. A German battery immediately replied with a second one responding around a half hour later. It was a big gun showdown. The number of casualties were beginning to build up for the South Africans. Sadly, with so many mounted soldiers that arrived, the horses also became the targets. Men described rows of horses laying about with their guts blown out everywhere. 
the Schutz Troop under the command of Colonel von Hadenbreck were estimated to be 10 times that of the South Africans. Yet the South Africans still put up a strong defense. The back and forth between the artillery was getting worse. At 10.30, a German shell got a direct hit on a gun, killing the sergeant major. A majority of the cannoneers were either killed or wounded. The remaining gun was being manned by wounded gunners. At 1100 hours, the Germans brought the, in two more field guns. The guns were pounding on the South Africans. This indeed was a good battle taking place. At 1300 hours, the Germans felt comfortable enough to take a lunch break along with improving their positions. An hour later, the fighting resumed. The South Africans still able to fight formed a hill called the Kopje. The definition of a Kopje is a small hill, so this was the perfect name for that small hill. <laughs> the Germans then launched an infantry attack. However, they were forced back. By 1700 hours, they managed to get within 1200 yards of the South Africans on the Kopje. The Germans focused all their artillery on the hill. Shells were exploding everywhere, throwing great amount of earth and rock flying in the air. At 1800 hours, the severely battered South Africans had no choice but to wave the white flag. And then something odd took place. Much like the Christmas truce that would come a few months later in France, as the white flag was being waved, all the remaining men from both sides ran towards the wells at the foot of the Kopje. Both sides were dying of thirst, and both sides began to mingle over water, acting like nothing had just happened. So the first attempt by South Africa to push into Germany's West Africa territory was a failure. And the British put a halt on further operations into German territory because of an uprising that was taking place at the Orange River colony. It was really clear cut. Either you were opposed of British rule or you were in full support of it. Some Afrikaners felt they had more in common with the Germans rather than the British. Regardless, they were ready to fight one another. By late October 1914, a rebellion had formed from former leaders of the Boer War. Rebels is the word some historians refer to as the group who were opposed of the British. I don't know. I hate to use that word rebels. I'll call them colonists. On the morning of November 12th, Louis Botha ordered his artillery to open up on the colonist camp. The Afrikaners whom were being shelled began to retreat for the nearest hills. As the South Africans under the command of Botha cleared through the camp, they witnessed their former comrades of the Boer War thrown everywhere, lying about dead. Some of the colonists fled to the Kalahari Desert. By the beginning of December, they were intercepted and cut down. Botha offered an amnesty to all colonists who surrendered. This was extended through the later part of December. It was rumored that a teenage loyalist son captured his colonist father. The dad swore to the son saying, My lad, just wait until this business is over. 
I'll have a few words with you at home. Numbers-wise, there was about 11,500 colonists who took up arms against the 30,000 loyalists. Loyalist casualties were around 350, and the colonists suffered around 550. Considering what we've talked about for the battles in 1914 alone, say the casualties at the first Battle of the Marne, which were in the hundreds of thousands, I mean, these numbers aren't that bad. By the end of November, the South African government relayed to commanders they were ready to resume attacks on German ground. At this time, the South African Army, also known as the Union of, Union of South Africa, was made up of a smorgasbord of soldiers. They had a mix of regulars and volunteers, uh, imperial soldiers, Rhodesians, foreigners seeking the glory of war, and even a squadron of armored cars supplied by the Royal Navy. For the first few months of the Union's conquest, the Germans had the dominating presence of air superiority. But don't get excited because that's not really saying much. They had an Aviatic P-14 and an LFG file. Both are really sort of infant stage military planes for the Great War especially the file during the beginning of the war. You don't want to be flying in one of these wooden death traps. Now, they did get modification and updates, but German Southwest Africa didn't have an updated version when the war broke out. In fact, the planes could only fly in relative, relatively cool weather conditions, so most of the time they could only fly in the early morning hours. By March of 1915, the first British aircraft arrived. Two BE-2C planes, even these were, you know, very infant staged aircraft. The wood frames wouldn't hold up from the climate alone and they would end up falling apart. However, by May, the British brought in six Henry Farman aircraft. <clears throat> now, the book I've been reading didn't say which Farman it was, it did say it was steel framed with a nine cylinder water cool engine. Because of the steel frame, a bigger engine, engine was needed. This leads me to believe this was the Farman HF 27. In fact, I'm pretty confident this was the one. If I'm wrong and somebody knows the answer, please reach out and let me know. The HF 27 is a very odd looking plane. The propeller is in the back, there's two seats in the front of the plane, one in front of the other, the gunner has the front seat. <clears throat> Although the British were excited to have a more powerful plane, in reality, the HF-27 didn't really do much for them. In fact, some say they arrived just a little too late. Louis Botha, the loyalist to the crown, arrived at Schwakopmund on February 11th. Schwakopmund is north of Walvis Bay, which Walvis Bay was now under control of the Union after three strong units of burghers arrived shortly after Botha's arrival. The Union now had strongholds in the central and southern portions of German Southwest Africa. Once the rest of the men and supplies arrived, they began their push inland. 
As the Union moved inland across the Namib Desert, they were introduced to new tactics of warfare, which the Union had viewed as unfair. They encountered landmines and water wells that had been poisoned by the Germans. You know, you can use your imagination to realize how how they discovered there were landmines. I'm sure it was gruesome scenario. A guy walking and next thing you know, he's in the air or parts of him are. You know, they also poisoned the water in the wells, which was really horrible considering Namibia Desert is very scarce of this resource. You would think even the Germans would have protected it. In fact, this was probably the most valuable asset in the desert. But they didn't see it like that. The Germans claimed it was fair game if they had written a notice that the well had been poisoned. Yes, a written notice. You heard that correctly. A piece of paper placed on the well saying this has been poisoned. Problem was for the Union, often the notice wasn't present. Probably had blown away with the wind or something. There's no real accounts of people dying, gurgling or foaming out of the mouth, dying in agony after drinking the water, but I'm sure some became quite ill if they drank it. And by poisoning, this can come in several forms. This could mean a soldier defecating in the water or something of the sort. They could have, you know, poured fuel or chemicals. You just don't know how far they went to poison the wells. We just know the Germans poisoned them. And here's where it gets more disturbing. And this might be upsetting to hear, but this is what happened. This is history. This will tell you how bad the natives were treated. A doctor from the 20th Mounted Rifles named Dr. A.C. Alport actually documented how he tested out the water. He wrote the following. I appointed my native boy, Klaus, a temporary acting Lance Corporal without pay or allowances. His duty as an NCO being that of unofficial water taster to the regiment. The principle of the test, of course, was that if he died, we knew the water was poisoned. Whereas if he continued to inflict his presence upon us, there was nothing to fear, and we were thus justified in quenching our thirst at the well. A.C. Alport was a highly intelligent man. You could read about him. He was a very accomplished doctor. He even founded a syndrome called the Alport Alport Syndrome, which is a genetic disorder. I think that leads to kidney disease and hearing loss. But he wasn't a good human being. And I'm not even going to say what he continued on to document about testing the water with this poor boy. This native boy's life meant nothing to him. It was as if he was an insect or rodent or something of the sort. It it always amazes me how somebody can be so intelligent, yet, excuse my language, such a piece of shit at the same time. Sorry, that's how I see it. But you know what? I don't even want to get started on this. I can go all day. Forget Alport. Let's give praise to the medics and nurses who had some form or better part of the human spirit in them. People such as Annie Botha. She may not have been a nurse, but she nursed her husband, Louis Botha, back to health 
after he fell ill after drinking water that had to be brought in for the soldiers. Annie became shocked at the condition of the sick and wounded and by the laziness and incompetence of the male nurses. Annie Botha set about to improve the situation and did so without provoking any high-level personnel such as generals and politicians. Her objective was to get good care for wounded soldiers. So salute to you for the good deeds you did, Annie Botha. So the water situation wasn't good. They had to bring potable drinking water in by ship, sometimes from 800 miles away. Army engineers created storage tanks for this. This was the water Botha became ill from, maybe. The good wasn't really that potable after all. The worst water I've ever drank in my life, obviously being in the military, <clears throat> we were about five days in training at the swamps of southern Georgia in the middle of the summer. This was like our home. Everyone had prickly heat, monkey butt. They were tired, hungry. It, it was just a complete suck fest. And then we ran out of water because there was no water buffalo near to resupply us. We had to get water from this runoff from the swamp. The water was, I mean, a dark, rusty brown. I don't know how many iodine tablets were dropped in each canteen, but it was a lot. We had to do, we needed water, and this was our best option. The taste I'll never forget was just horribly rancid, but you know what? It did the job, and I lived. I And honestly, I don't even remember getting diarrhea from it, which just from the amount of iodine we used, you think that would be automatic, but no, it it worked. After that, I went out and got myself a water filtration system, the kind backpackers use. I only carried it at certain times, like the summer, when I knew we knew we'd be out there for a good amount of time. And of course, I always carried iodine tablets as a double measure of sanitation. Anywho, after the first week of April, the Union Southern Force had formed a semicircle around the Germans in the South. The force began converging on the Central Railway that ran down the length of the colony. The same railway the Germans will use for their retreat to the north. The element that suffered the most was the Union's northern force, the one crossing the Namib Desert. One soldier said it was one of the most awful scenes of desolation to be, to be found on the face of the globe. Miles upon miles, as far as the eye can see, it's a great empty expanse of desert. It was recorded that on the 8th and 9th of March, 1915, the temperature soared up to 132 degrees Fahrenheit. This is literally killer weather. I mean, you know, take your pick. The deadly wind chill in the Caucasus or the scorching heat of the desert in Africa. It's a hard choice which one's a worse way to go. With the Germans slowly retreating, columns of Rhodesians and South Africans under the command of Colonel PCB Skinner finally caught up and engaged in a fight on the 25th of April on the outskirts of Chok sorry, I know I'm gonna butcher this 
Trichobjes. Trichobjes. I think I said that right. Skinner pulled back his forces into Trichobjes, and at the first light of the 20, on the 26th, the Germans began pounding them with two batteries of artillery. Skinner's force couldn't match what the Germans were throwing at them, but lucky for Skinner, the naval armored vehicles had arrived at Trichobjes just two days prior and were eager to get in a fight. The vehicles had been spotted by German reconnaissance planes when they arrived, but were mistaken for field kitchens. The armored cars quickly rushed to the German flank and opened up with their machine guns. And after five hours of battle, the Germans finally withdrew. Again, talking about low casualty numbers for the Great War, after the battle, the Germans took around 30 casualties, I believe half dead, and the Union over 40 casualties with around eight dead. You know, you hear artillery bombardment and machine guns in any battle of the Great War, and naturally you think in in the hundreds of thousands, you know, hundreds of casualties at least. But no, in Africa so far, it's been quite low for the Great War again, which is surprising. By the beginning of May, the Germans surrendered the town of Karibib without a fight and then Windhoek which was the main objective of the campaign. Windhoek contained the German wireless station needed by the Allies. Theodore Seitz, a governor of German Southwest Africa, spoke with Louis Botha by phone on May 11th to discuss terms. An armistice was arranged that began on May 20th, 1915. Botha and his men, along with Seitz and his team, met north of Karabib. Seitz believed Germany would win the war, and his terms basically said all fighting would stop and each side would retain the territory they currently held. With the understanding that when Germany won the war in Europe, South Africa would return the colony to Germany, and along with the other defeated allies, they would pay suitable compensation. Botha, sitting down, listening calmly and politely with his hands interlocked, maybe a couple fingers tapping one another. Then with no emotion, he leaned in towards sights and said, my terms are unconditional surrender. Basically giving him the invisible bird and telling him to piss off. You gotta admire Botha for standing on firm ground. I mean, he knew it was the Union who had the upper hand and what was happening in Europe made no difference to him at this time. Each side was not willing to negotiate, so the two parties parted ways without a deal. Botha immediately began resupplying his men and by mid-June, the Union was ready to resume the offensive. By the 20th of June, the Union entered Amaruru after the Germans fled, and by the 1st of July, they marched into Otavi. Botha again called for a pause, allowing his soldiers to catch up, rest, and regroup after moving through the brutal desert heat. The Germans were ready to discuss terms again. They called for a second round of truce. And this time, 
the war in southwest Africa was declared over on the 9th of July after the Germans surrendered. Although this can't be compared in size to the battles in Europe or other fronts, this was a huge success for the Union of South Africa and a moral, moral victory for the British. Before parting ways with his troops, Fatha said to them, When you consider the hardships we met, the lack of water, the poisoned wells, and how wonderfully we were spared, you must realize and believe in God's hand protecting us. And it was due to his intervention that we are safe today. <clears throat> London then reached out to Botha, asking him for those he'd be recommending for honors. Botha initially refused, saying, I will make no recommendations. When I think of the fighting in France and what our troops are suffering there, it seems to me that we have done nothing. But the truth is, they did do something. So far, they were the only ones to have fought a planned out ground attack with successful completion. A writer from the Cambridge history of the British Empire described it as the neatest and most successful campaign of the Great War. All right, folks, that's going to be it for this episode. On part three of Africa and the Great War, I'm going to dive into the story of the Konigsberg. I hope you're enjoying hearing about Africa and the Great War as much as I am. I'm really enjoying it and I'm learning it's good not to limit yourself to just one or a couple fronts to the Great War because there's so much interesting history out there and as I'm finding out. Okay, folks, I had a couple admin notes. I want to so I kept I've been getting a lot of good feedback on my social media accounts. Um, so I want to give one call out to a gentleman named Leo. Leo, and I don't want to say any last names because you never know if people want their names, full names called out. But Leo asked me if I've ever watched on YouTube a channel called CNR Arsenal. So it's C-N-R-S-E-N-A-L, CNR Arsenal. Um, I have. I've actually watched them a lot. Um, they what they they get all these really cool weapons from World War II, from World War One. A lot of other stuff, and, and they demo the weapons, and they talk about them. They tell a little background story on them. Um, very cool channel. <clears throat> they got some really amazing World War One weapons on there. I also one call, or sorry, I also watch one called Iraq Veteran Eight 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 Eight, I believe. Um, another cool channel, very similar. Although the Iraq Veteran, the, the World War One weapons they've used in the past, they're not in greatest condition as CNR Arsenal. The CNR Arsenals, they seem to have some really great weapons that are in just amazing condition. Um, I watch a lot of these channels because I try to get sound bites. So obviously we know sound wasn't recorded during World War I, so it's hard for me to produce sound like that. So what I got to do, I got to find sound bites from a weapon being fired and kind of create my own. Um, I, I could reach out to CNR Arsenal, seeing if maybe they could work up a deal with me to at least provide sound bites, but people get, uh, kind of weird about that stuff, but uh, maybe I will. Um, 
you just can't use those because they, they talk the whole time. So obviously I can't use some of their sound bites of firing weapons. Uh, but yeah, thank you for that, Leo. Very good recommendation. Again, that's CNR Arsenal. Very cool channel if you're into the backstory on some of the weapons from World War I. Um, another individual named, let's see, there's going through this. A gentleman named Michael reached out to me. He said, do you have another podcast? And the answer to that is I do. Now, I don't want to upset any fans because I know it takes me a while to get these episodes written, put out. This is the kind of podcast that takes work. You got to read, you got to research, you got to write it, you got to produce it. it. It's not just plug and plug in and go. On my other podcast, I do it with a buddy, sometimes buddies. It's basically we get a couple topics we want to talk about and we talk on we talk about it. Um, let me give you some backstory before I go any further on that. <clears throat> so, me and some friends years ago we started this podcast. And we did it because this is when the veterans, the suicide is just kind of at a crazy high, although it still is at a high, which isn't good, but it was just getting really out of control. In fact, some of the people we knew have, have taken their life. Um, we're, we're Ranger buddies. We didn't want to get to see each other much. And we said, hey, we, we got to keep in contact. We got to police each other up. So what, why don't we start a podcast? You know, it allows us to talk. You know, we get together. We shoot the shit and and we record it. That's basically what it is. It's it's some friends looking after each other and they decided to make a, a podcast out of it. Now, <clears throat> I'll tell you this podcast name. It's called the Jack Shack Podcast 2.0. You can say you can follow find it on all platforms that you can find over the top of Great War Podcast. But I do want to warn some of you listeners. It's ex- explicit language. We curse a lot. We talk about anything from we do drinker reviews like tiki drinks, whiskey drinks. We do cigar reviews. We'll talk about aliens. We'll talk about UFOs. We'll talk about politics. We talk about tacos because we have a love for eating tacos. Um, we'll talk about current affairs. We talk about sports. So I think you get the, the, the drift. It's basically some pals. It would be like us sitting in a cigar lounge or sitting in our grub, garage kind of shooting the shit, but we're recording it. So if you're easily offended, um, you don't like those topics, you don't like foul language, this probably isn't going to be for you. But if that's something down your alley, check it out. So the answer to that, yes, I do have another podcast. Um, and again, it, it it doesn't take a lot of work. It's me and my buddy. We have a two-line script saying, hey, this is what we're going to talk about. We throw a couple main main topics out there. We get online, we record, and we just talk. And it's a it's a very easy conversation. It's my pal. There's supposed to be three of us. The third one, I don't know if he's ever going to come on. Um, but yeah, it's 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 my Ranger Bud and I. We uh we have a, a podcast that uh we talk about anything and everything that that we want to. Um, yeah. So that is that. That's a few admin notes. Um, again, you guys reward if. If it's not your cup of tea, if you're easily offended, don't don't go on there. If you if that's your cup of tea, please please listen and show us your support. All right, folks, thank you for listening, and until the next episode, take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.